This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold, Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. For too long, too much of the discussion about being Black in America has been centered around the negative. While Black Americans have always experienced particular difficulties navigating this country's racist structures and beliefs, Blackness is not and should not only be something to lament. It should be something to be celebrated loudly and proudly. And that's the argument Ebony K. Williams makes in her new book, Bet on Black, the good news about being Black in America today. In the book, she discusses how we're living in a unique time that offers unprecedented access to an array of tools to honor our Blackness however we see fit, whenever we see fit, and wherever we see fit. And joining me now is Ebony K. Williams. In addition to being a television and podcast personality, Ebony is author of Bet on Black, the good news about being Black in America today. Ebony, welcome to Metro Focus. Jenna, thank you so much for having me and for um, that incredible introduction. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Well, so first off, usually when we, uh, you know, talk about books or movie documentaries, et cetera, uh, I just want to get into the title a little bit. And I think it sort of harkens back to a line maybe some people might remember from a movie. But uh, tell me, what was the inspiration behind the title of the book? Yes, so the bet on black part, uh, it, it's exactly as you referenced, that's a pop culture reference many of us know, as the kids would say, if you know, you know, that's from a movie uh, by a very famed black actor. Uh, and it's also a colloquial saying uh, that many people use uh, broadly. It's the subtitle for me, Jenna, that was very important for me to get right. Um, the good news about being black in America today and, and to tether that alongside the literal word black you know, because as as you said, um, I do make the argument in this book and I, I do feel wholeheartedly that blackness is often perceived as only uh, a trauma story, as only something to to to, you know, to uh, see as downtrodden or woeful. And while certainly um, there are very unique uh, devastations around how blackness has been constructed globally and in America, uh, that is not at all close to our only experience. Um, it is it is a, a blackness for me. I call it in the book my superpower, and for me it is. It is the place from which my identity most strongly derives. It is the place in which my confidence and swagger uh, is centered, and it's something that I am extremely grateful for. Uh, that I get to be black uh, in this in this world and in this country. You know, it almost feels uh, like the the not only the intention behind the book, but the title and, and the intention both sort of harken back to uh, the period where I'm Black and I'm Proud was a thing that people were uh, saying. And I'm wondering, 
was, I mean, everything, there's a time and a place for everything. And I'm wondering if the recent events that we've seen, especially since the onset of the pandemic with, you know, black and brown people being uh, disproportionately affected by the COVID-19 virus, Black Lives Matter, um, say their names, George Floyd, of course, all of these things, were those all inspirations for you to say, yes, there is all this trauma, but there's also this good stuff too? Exactly that, Jenna. It, it's everything you just said, and then we can add on, you know, Black women dying twice as likely as white women in childbirth and the issues around, um, you know, our, our populace and, and healthcare disparities, all of it, housing, you name it. And yet, uh, I find joy in my Blackness and, and I see joy in, the, in, in, in my uh, comrades across uh, this nation. And I know it's something deeply, uh, both academically, uh, as, as I talk about in the book, I have a degree in Black Studies from UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, so I understand Blackness from a uh, academic lens and also, of course, a cultural lens. I'm almost 40 years old. I've been Black my whole life. Uh, and I, I felt the need in this moment, because of everything you laid out, to reframe, to challenge the framing of Blackness, because we are journalists and we work in this field and we, we we know the headlines better than most. But even if you're just a consumer, Jenna, the headlines around the way Blackness is spoken about, reported about, it can seem extremely uh, unilateral and extremely um, just uh, tragic, uh, for lack of a better term. And I don't, I am not comfortable, nor am I willing uh, as a Black American who is so knowledgeable and so appreciative of my awareness around the broadness, the broad scope of Blackness and the Black experience, not on my watch will I allow that singular narrative of Black trauma to take hold uh, without challenging and pushing back and presenting a good news story about being Black in America today. Well, you know, that's always something that we try to focus on on Metro Focus as well, is that uh, there is no one ubiquitous uh, Black American or African American experience. But I want to get into some of the good stuff that you were talking about. Like, they might not be at the forefront of people's minds because of so many of the challenging, um, sometimes heartbreaking headlines. Let's talk about what are some of the positives that are happening right now that are good. That are good. So underneath the statistic that is very real around, let's say, Black home ownership, uh, the reality is right now Black home ownership rates in America nationwide hovers around 42%, maybe 38%, depending on who's counting. And Jenna, that number is exactly where we were uh, as a people with home ownership in 1964 when the Fair Housing Discrimination Act was passed. Uh, so that looks like a bad news story. The reframing that I do in the book is I talk about the good news story. I talk about how I don't think it's uh, I think it's very hard to be free when you don't own anything. And so I'm making an argument to advocate for black people in America today to prioritize ownership of assets of any kind. I'm speaking to home ownership as one example that I recently just purchased my condo here in Manhattan in Harlem. But it, it could, I'm talking about collaborative home ownership. It's New York City. It's very, very expensive to buy here. One bedroom, one bath is a million bucks starting off. Well, maybe I'm paying rent in Manhattan, but maybe I have tenants in Tennessee or Atlanta or a place that has a more affordable price point. Um, so the good news are under that 
uh, sobering statistic of Black home ownership is that we've got resources and tools today that we didn't have in 1968 when fair housing was first passed. We can be creative, we can be mobile, and we can avail ourselves to programming, financing, and collaborative efforts to access ownership in, in really creative ways. Well, one of the other things I thought was so interesting, and I mentioned in the intro, was the celebration of uh, Blackness whenever, wherever, and however you want. Uh, again, not to focus on the negative, but we have done several pieces where we've had people across the African diaspora talk about the fact that they don't necessarily feel comfortable to do that in all spaces. So I'm wondering if you could just sort of unpack that, like, no, you can be proud um, and out loud about who you are wherever you see fit. The very best example to what you are speaking to right now, Jenna, is the very newly minted uh, NCAA Women's Collegiate Basketball Champion, uh, Angel Reese. This is a young woman who, if you want to know, if you are a Black American uh, or you know or love a Black American and you want to know what celebrating Blackness in your own construction looks like in real time, when and how and where you see fit, look at Angel Reese. This young woman is very unapologetic about who she is. And she speaks to the fact that her aesthetic, even as a black woman, is not uh, as palatable as some others. She speaks about her um, her rhetoric, her dialect uh, being particularly black and not necessarily being so comfortable to some. Uh, and she is uh, unbothered in a word. She is persistent. She is insistent on showing up in her black skin as the champion that she is. And I love to see it. I think I think this generation in front of right in front of us, Jenna, is really modeling what this celebration of blackness can look like. And it's also important while celebrating that Blackness to also bear in mind uh, the people who laid the path yes. or laid the groundwork to be able to do that. Because, of course, when I think of uh, Angel, I believe is her name, um, I also think of women before her like Flojo. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Florence Griffith Jr. I'm thinking about um, Wilma Rudolph. I'm thinking about, you know, all of these titans of industry. Um, what's my brother? Um uh, author Ash, you know, um, so you're correct. And, and in the book, I, I take a lot of time going back to bring us forward. I open each chapter of the book with a quote that I think centers the theme of the chapter. And, and often cited in the book are going to be my favorites, James Baldwin. Um, I cite a, a ton of James Baldwin, I know, a ton <laughs> of W.B. Du Bois, a ton of Frederick Douglass. Uh, and the, this is because of what you just spoke to. Um, the fact is, what we get to do now as Black Americans living today, we only have this privilege because of everything that has been done on our behalf by the ancestors. Do you see a point in time, because another thing that a lot of Black Americans have become very, very adept at, and that, of course, is code switching, that because there's still theoretically or seemingly a time and a place where it's acceptable to be unapologetically Black, um, that that's something that a lot of people have had to master. Do you see that as something um, that could be perhaps another part of the past in the soon future? I do, Jenna, and I know that can be a hot take. I have made the personal decision very recently um, to no longer code switch. I, I just refuse to do it. Now, I'm not advising everyone at home to adopt this methodology. It, it depends on, frankly, um, your risk tolerance, because it is a risk. Um, when you have the audacity to decenter whiteness, to decenter heteronormalcy, to decenter uh, male construction and patriarchy, anything that is outside of traditional uh, American norms, 
Um, you are by act protesting. That's a protest. Uh, that is something that is going to be met with reaction and consequence likely. So you've got to assess for yourself, depending on where you are academically, professionally, financially, even geographically, uh, what are the risks associated with choosing to uh, push back on white comforts and normalcies and, 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 and not adhere to code switching uh, and make that choice for yourself in a way that feels good to you. But I, I personally think that unlike previous uh, times in our nation, it's at least an option to opt out of code switching. And that's, again, a part of the good news about being Black in America today. All right. Well, we have about a minute left, and I realize there's no way to answer this question in a minute. <laughs> but uh, but no, but I do, because I'm sure people are watching, and they're just like, you know, she's really familiar, but I don't know where. You're a cast member on Real Housewives of New York. And the reason why I bring that up is because that had, for a long time, been an all-white cast, which is ironic, because New York is an incredibly diverse city. And during your time on the show, you did push back. What was that experience like? I talk about it a lot in chapter three of the book, so you'll all be able to get more there. But uh, briefly, Jenna, that experience was um, trying, difficult, and ultimately very liberating. Um, I found a lot of liberation in my form of protest, and that's is essentially what it became uh, during my insistence on centering uh, my Black identity as a housewife, as the historic first Black housewife on Real Housewives of New York. Many of my castmates met that protest with ire, uh, and I was able to stand uh, ten toes down, as we say, and, and show up in, in my allness and come for everything that's mine, everything that this world and, and, and society tells uh, me and women that look like us that we are not deserving of or qualify for. Uh, I'm very clear to say I am done working half as much for twice as hard for half as much. It is now time for me to get everything. Okay. Well, I think that is a powerful note to leave it on. Uh, Ebony K. Williams, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Metro Focus um, and discussing your new book, Bet on Black, um, the good news about being Black in America. And we look forward to what you do next. Thank you, Jenna. Absolutely. A new artificial intelligence program, ChatGPT, is sweeping the internet. The free software is capable of doing almost everything from writing essays, film scripts, and poetry to passing graduate level law and business school exams. This revolutionary software, while no doubt exciting, is also concerning for some educators who feel that students could use it to easily cheat on school assignments. New York City is one of several large school districts that has already banned students from using ChatGPT as officials review the potential pros and cons of giving students access to such a powerful resource. While ChatGPT certainly has its critics, there are other educators who feel that the software can be an incredibly useful tool for our students, so long as we teach them how to use it the right way. Joining us tonight with more on ChatGPT and why he's not only encouraging his students, but also requiring it in some fashion is Dr. Ethan Mollick. Dr. Mollick is an associate professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And professor Mollick, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So this is such a fascinating topic here. Um, I know I mentioned you're an associate professor. I'm a visiting lecturer at Yale, have been for 15 years, and I'm waiting to see what my final papers are going to look like here. So this is an especially relevant conversation for me to have with you and for all of our viewers to, to watch here. Let, let's start at the beginning, a good place to start, which is 
give us just a brief overview of what this is when we're talking about ChatGPT and it's what its abilities are. Sure. So it's often called AI, but AI is kind of an imprecise term that means a lot of things. ChatGPT is what's specifically called a large language model. So it's basically, uh, think of it as like the, an autocomplete meets a robot. So it basically can create text for you based on whatever you ask it, based on having learned almost everything on the internet through October 2021. It's a it's a concept that's almost hard to get your not just your arms around, but your brain around. How new is this? So these large language models have been around for a, a few years. There was a model called GPT-3 that has been around for about a year and a half and caused a little bit of a stir when it came out. People got a little bit anxious about it and it sort of produced sort of C minus essays. Right. And then that was updated at the end of November along with ChatGPT and GPT 3.5, same kind of thing. And suddenly, even though the technology is the same, the size of the model, something kind of magical happened and the capabilities went up from mediocre to absolutely stunning. Yeah. I'm gonna talk in a few minutes about the objections. And I mentioned some in the introduction here. Um, there was an initial reaction amongst many educators saying, oh, th this can't be good for our students and original thinking. But let's focus on, on your view of this and why you have concluded this can be can be a valuable tool. Why do you think that is so? So what's fascinating about using this, and I would actually, the thing I'd recommend, there's a free version available and everybody should try this out and not just for a few minutes, like take it, you gotta spend like an hour to kind of get it, right? And a bunch of, bunch of guides and stuff on how to do it. But I think what you'll find is, is that for writing, it suddenly does all sorts of amazing things. So just to give you a couple examples, a lot of people aren't great at generating ideas. GPT-3 and ChatGPT will be happy to give you 50 ideas for a good project to do. Not all of them will be good, but some will be great. It can take and synthesize pieces of information. You can put an academic paper in and ask it to summarize it. You can put your writing in and ask it to improve your writing or make it punchier, and it will do all of those things. So we have a general purpose tool for processing information. It feels like that's something we should incorporate, especially in classes like a business school class, rather than something that we need to fight. Explain to us a little bit of some of your courses, some of the, the, the subject matter that you teach and how you feel you can incorporate that in a, in a safe academic fashion. Sounds great. I mean, I, I let me even tell you how I couldn't stop it, right? So yeah. I learned, I, I started using ChatGPT from the very beginning because I've already been playing with these AI systems. So it came out on a Thursday. That Tuesday, I taught my undergraduate entrepreneurship class at Warden and I introduced the class to it. I sort of said, let's stop and let's talk about this. By the end of the first class, one of my students had already created a complete working demo for their entrepreneurial idea with working code um, in using a coding library they never used before. I posted on Twitter, they had three venture capital offers that night. Wow. By the Thursday, 60% of the class had used chat to do something, explain a concept to them they didn't understand, tell them what was wrong with the test result. So it's being used everywhere. Cheating is certainly one possibility, but it's not the only one. So in my classes, I require it all over. I expect my students to use it to help them generate ideas, to help them write essays. I've now increased the amount of things they have to write and the diversity of things they have to write, all because this tool makes it easy to do so. We see oftentimes folks suggesting a comparison, saying, look, don't, don't be alarmed. This is progress. Go back to the days when I was in high school and even college, although I, I was a history major, I didn't take a, a, a whole lot of, of math courses, but you know, there was a time when you could not use calculators. Yes. 
And, and then, and this was kind of an earth shattering moment for some traditionalists when all of a sudden the folks said, well, wait a minute, why can't you use calculators in your class to help you? Is that a, a viable parallel, do you think, for what we're seeing here? So I think in the short term, very much so. In the short term, this is like a calculator. If you're taking a writing class where composition is going to matter, you just like with a calculator-based class, you'll need to use a blue book and handwrite things or do oral exams. For classes where you're supposed to use advanced math or advanced writing, we can now do more of that and better of that because we have a calculator, right? So in the short term, I think that's very true. In the long term, the real questions are, okay, so this is great for the, you know, an issue for the classroom. What does this mean for the real world? And that that's a bigger issue. So I'm, I've seen uh, some observations made, and certainly this is amongst even supporters of this idea. And I think I might have seen it on, on the, the, the website uh, for OpenAI who, who developed this. And they say there's a little bit of a caution here as to how this comes out. And one of the suggestions I saw was, you know, the, the, the ability of the human mind to craft words and thoughts and ideas. And perhaps this isn't at that level. What do you think about that? So not to get too ahead of the game, but uh, mm -hmm. just yesterday I was given access to the newest AI, which is Bing's AI, which is basically OpenAI, the ChatGPT, mm -hmm. on some sort of steroids attached to the internet. And I was able to ask it, you know, write a description of somebody eating cake. And then I said, okay, go look up Kurt Vonnegut's rules for good writing and apply that good writing style to the essay on cake. I completely rewrote it. And then it justified how it made all the changes and it made it a murder mystery story instead, where it yeah. said, you told me you know, it needs antagonists and there needs to be you know, drama and sarcasm. I, I was blown away, right? Is it as good as the best human writers? No. Is, it, is the difference between four months ago where it couldn't write at all to mm -hmm. two months ago where it was writing at a solid B minus level for master's level classes to this, we have a progression that is a pretty fast one. So I'm all for human ingenuity playing a role. I think it does, but I think we should be very cautious about feeling comfortable that what the systems do today is what they'll keep doing. Yeah. Talk about, let's talk about some of the objections, right? Um, what are you hearing from your colleagues that, 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 that may well resonate with you and with uh, certainly with them as to why they are to some degree or other uncomfortable with the utilization of this program. All right, so I think it breaks down to a few things. One is the capabilities of the system itself. So ChatGPT and all large language models at this stage lie. They lie a lot. They lie shamelessly and absolutely convincingly. So what are, they, so what, are they politicians? Is that what they've created themselves at? Uh, it's, Sorry, well, that it's, was an editorial comment. I couldn't help myself. Sorry. Uh, you're not the first person to point that out, but they don't, do it with, they don't do it with intent, right? What they do is hallucinate, right? It, they don't know what's true or what isn't. It's generating information that's plausible. And once it runs out of rail, it just starts making stuff up. So it, it's so plausible that I used a different AI system that simulated, that trained on my Twitter feed to generate, you know, and I asked the questions that I, you know, in, to answer on, on my behalf. And it started citing papers that seemed so plausible that I thought I had, might have written them and not remembered from 10 years ago. <laughs> that they were completely fake, right? So it right. makes up information. Um, so that's the first problem. Right. And that's troubling. That is troubling. So what I do in my classes, I say it makes up information. If you're not an expert in the topic, you need to be very careful about the topic. And I'm going to grade you based on the accuracy of your results. So you have to be aware that it hallucinates and you have to use that to your advantage yeah. or you know, avoid it, use it to disadvantage rather. Right. 
if you were, I'll, I'll give you an illustration. So for me, right? You're talking your business courses and you have various models you're working with. I, I teach an undergraduate, semi, undergraduate seminar at Yale on famous trials. And as our final project, each of my 18 students need to find a, a trial that's out there, not, not the, of the 12 we've talked about, or, or, but others. And then they have to write about it. They have to write why it was significant, the legal implications, the political impl social implications, historical consequences, essentially why it, it should be viewed as a value, certainly to them and, and, and maybe to others. Is that something that you think this would lend itself to, or is that something that I should be fearful of? Uh, so I would say a week ago that you this would be something you should embrace because it wouldn't be able to do that sophisticated analysis. It would produce something that sounded like sophisticated analysis, but you, as an experienced professor, would know it wasn't. And it could be a great writing aid. Right? I mean, remember, some of our students are English as a second language, third language, fourth language. They never learned to write or, you know, brilliant yeah. students, lots to learn. But we tend to say writing is intelligence. It isn't always. So I would have said it's great. It'll be a tool to help them become better writers. You know, you have to be a little nervous because they'll produce a lot more content than they did without being as thoughtful about it. And you won't be able to judge quality based on writing. But mm -hmm. there's something interesting there. I will tell you that Bing AI is capable of doing analysis where you say, find a case, right? Here's the assignment, write me 2,000 words about it. And it does something credible with that. So uh, the world is changing pretty quickly. So I, when I could say my advice last week would be different than this week, I yeah. think we need to stay tuned. That's a pretty good indicator how quickly the world is changing. It brings me to my last question to you. It's been a fascinating conversation. We could talk for hours, but got about a minute and a half, a little bit less than that. It, 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 the world is changing so rapidly. Five years from now, in, in your classroom, in my classroom, in, in, in elementary school classrooms, what is this going to look like? I don't know. I mean, I think anyone tells you they know. The technology is increasing about an order of magnitude a year. Right. We went. I, I was able to, by the way, successfully create a complete deep fake lecture of myself where I didn't do anything. The AI created the speech. I said, write a speech like Ethan Mollick, and it did. Uh, that was actually pretty good and accurate. And then I fed into another system that synthesized my voice from a minute of speech and created the speech. And then another system that generated animated images of me talking from a single photograph. And I created a complete animated lecture with no work. What is? I mean, that's now, right? So what does that mean for the future? It's really hard to know. Um, you know, usually we say technology doesn't change stuff that much, right? I don't know. The pace of change is really fast here, and I don't think anyone can give you a completely accurate prediction because nobody saw this coming in the first place. So I think things will mostly, you know, okay on rails be the same, but there's a lot of interesting stuff happening at a pace right. I've never seen before in all my career in technology and education and entrepreneurship oh. and everything else. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.